Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to this very special edition of Atlanta Business Radio. We are actually broadcasting live from ATDC like we do almost every month. Lee, I just so thoroughly enjoy coming down here, visiting with faculty, with mentors, with startups, and today's going to be no exception, man. We're going to have a lot of fun. Tell us about this first episode. Well, this episode is an exciting one. Hopefully, this is the beginning of something we're going to be doing regularly here. I got with me Jane McCracken. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. And Scott Ryan. Welcome. Hey there. How are you? And uh, today, this is uh, the brainchild of Jane. She uh, came up with this take five, influenced by the Dave Brubeck Quartet back in, uh, this was before your time, 1959 is when that came out, Jane. But I'm sure you heard the song. It was uh, nice of you to say. (laughs) You heard the song, Take Five, which the lyrics are, wouldn't it be better not to be so polite? You could offer a light. Just start a little conversation now. It's all right. Just take five. And that was the inspiration to this um, themed episode of taking five, five influences of your life, the entrepreneur's life. So tell me about how you see this playing out over the next uh, year. Well, the idea is to invite some of the entrepreneurs that are a part of the ATDC's family and asking them to find five influences in their life, people, places, events, pieces of music, books they've read that have impacted their entrepreneurial journey and ask them to tell us about it. And then uh, we're going to put them on the hot seat. We are. And then we're going to ask them uh, about the influences and why they are influences in their life. That's right. All right. And the guinea pig you got was Scott Ryan. I do. (laughs) Scott is one of our entrepreneurs in residence. He is a serial entrepreneur and is the founder and CEO of Mantra Systems. So Scott, tell us a little bit about Mantra and yourself. Thanks. Um, so uh, Mantra Solutions is a uh, what I like to call a SaaS-enabled uh, managed IT services provider. So um, we're in, I guess, the broad category of tech-enabled services, but we help companies um, that are uh, mid-market-sized companies. We help them by managing all of their IT infrastructure, helping them migrate to the cloud, set up their security and compliance, um, all the kind of backroom operations of their IT uh, we do it in a very unique way, which is kind of what puts the uh, technology stamp on it, I guess, which is we are creating our own um, SaaS offering uh, that we've developed in-house to uh, deliver this uh, uh, these services to our customers. So, now, what's the pain they're having uh, where they say, you know, well, we got to call the folks at Mantra? Yeah, the, the pain typically they're having is oftentimes, uh, it's compliance is kind of the, one of the big, uh, and security in general. Those tend to be the big drivers. Um, the move to the cloud is a big driver for people as well. I mean, generally, um, there seems to be this attitude sometimes among boards or C levels within companies that uh, by moving to the cloud, they're going to take all their IT uh, pain away. Um, and really all they're doing is just moving their infrastructure someplace else. There's still all the management of all that IT infrastructure that has to occur. So oftentimes a lot of managed service sales follow on uh, either during a cloud transition or right after it when they realize they still need a lot of help uh, to manage the cloud. So this is your service comes in while they're deciding to make that initial move to the cloud or they've already made a move and then it's not working out? 
Yeah, um, both. Um, I mean, if they're forward looking enough, it's happening as they're doing the transition. I think we see right now, uh, we've been in business for about a year. And I would say that the pain points that we're seeing uh, really fall into three primary areas right now. Uh, one is around uh, compliance-related issues. They've got um, either privacy-related or other uh, industry-specific uh, compliance concerns like HIPAA or um, uh, or the uh, California Privacy Act uh, or uh, GDPR, something like that, that's affecting their business. And they realize that tends to be where most internal IT departments kind of um, uh, realize that it's beyond their internal capability to handle themselves. Uh, so com- even compli- though initially they thought they could, oftentimes, uh, the compliance, yes, either they thought that they could themselves, or maybe they weren't even aware that they had compliance issues and it was brought up to them by one of their customers. That's, uh, one thing we've found actually our very first customer we signed, um, is a consulting firm. And as happens with many of these compliance, uh, frameworks is, uh, a major company will have to go to all of their suppliers and force all their suppliers to follow the same compliance concerns. And it got pushed on them and they turned around and pushed on us mm-hmm. um, and or, and came to us actually uh, as we signed the contract. That that's what they needed. Um, uh, the other big thing that seems to be cropping up quite often is M&A. So we've got uh, two clients already that um, – in the process of doing an acquisition or post-acquisition, people often underestimate the amount of work that's required to integrate IT. Um, and we have a, a two clients already that came on board. One came in after they did the acquisitions or as the acquisitions were happening and they needed uh, help getting that done. Uh, another one knew the uh, acquisition was coming and they brought us on board in preparation for it, knowing that we would be able to help them uh, once that uh, once that transition uh, was kicking in. Now, at this stage, are you focusing on specific in- industries like uh, healthcare, like you mentioned, HIPAA? Yeah. So, um, so I've done this is uh, my fourth, maybe fifth startup. So, um, so I've gone haven't gotten right. I'm still figuring <laughs> exactly, it out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I sound like my wife. So uh, the. Uh, Every time I've gone into a, uh, a new startup, I, I, def- I have some definite views about what uh, verticals that we're going to go after. We kind of came into this one and said, and they've always been wrong. Uh, every single time, there's always a pivot, multiple pivots. Um, so this time- You started pivoting first. Exactly. So we just came in with the idea that, you know, rather than uh, make these presumptions about where we think the market is, let's start gathering customers in and then let's see where the market takes us. Mm -hmm. So we have a few verticals that are beginning to develop. I don't know that any of them are necessarily far enough along that I would think um, those verticals will be our, our, our focus or, um, uh, or multiple focus areas that we'll have. Um, What I will say from a horizontal perspective, uh, we're focused on the mid market. So in the space that we're in of managed IT services, it's a massive industry. It's about a $200 billion industry, but it's very um, what I call barbelled market. There's a high end of the market, which is um, served by the IBM Global Services, Capgemini, those guys, with a very traditional um, outsourcing body mentality. They rebadge employees and bring new people in. And that's really only um, the cost points for that. Kind of reserve you, yourself to sort of the top 250 um, companies in the market. And then there's a very low end of the market, which is you know, um, it's a 10 person, uh, type companies, dentist office or whatever. And, you know, the printer's not working. And so don't print until Thursday when the PC guy shows up on Thursday. Right. And that's, that's sort of the state of the industry. And there's 
easily 50,000 companies that do that, none of which ever have the capability or the skill set to ever scale those businesses beyond maybe a couple million in revenue. We think there's a big open area in the mid-market, and that's kind of where we're headed. Companies that have about $100 million in revenue, up to a couple uh, billion in revenue. Um, for example, um, Parities, Lagardere, which is a, a big retailer in the airport space. Um, U.S. headquarters based here in Atlanta. They're one of our customers. They're very much in that realm, about $2 billion in revenue. Um, typically not a complete household name, but a very significant size IT operation, um, you know, that was doing some M&A. And that's kind of how we got them as a customer earlier this year. Now, are you working with like private equity firms and VCs to help them make those transitions when they are kind of acquiring? Exactly. Yep. So um, we're working with them for two reasons. Um, initially, right now, we're uh, working with them on these um, specific opportunities. I can't say that any of them is necessarily panned out as of yet with any new opportunities for us. Um, the other selfish reason for us to be working with them is that uh, we believe that uh, roll up is uh, roll up opportunities where you uh, M and A where you go in and buy a bunch of other uh, companies in the space is uh, there's active roll ups happening right now. Uh, we've uh, fundamentally believe the software that we're developing will make rollups for us easier. Um, in fact, we've already done our first acquisition, which we did April 1 of this year. We bought a small little um, managed services company uh, here locally, and that became kind of the first deal to give us um, some indication of how we're going to do these deals. So I, I did M&A and investments for EMC uh, for about two and a half years for about uh, half of their business. I was on the sourcing side. So I've done a lot of uh, deals and been involved in a lot of deal transactions. So we were able to go from first introduction to uh, to closing the deal in four weeks, um, which is lightning fast in the uh, M&A uh, <laughs> sure. realm. So. And then um, for the purposes of this show, we're talking about influences. Um, I know you're about to share some of your influences, but talk about the influence of ATDC and how that's come to play in, in the growth of this company and maybe previous ones. Yeah, so I've been... I've been in and around the ATDC for a long time, uh, longer before than, it was cool. <laughs> yeah, is it cool now? Is it? Uh, it's definitely be, cool now. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, yeah, I've um, I, I first so twenty years ago, I think it was the first time I was actually involved uh, with the ATDC. So um, uh, I, I definitely have been kind of influenced uh, by the ATDC pretty significantly in my uh, career uh, over the years. So when I uh, decided to do my first. Um, true startup. I did. A, I, I'd moved to Atlanta, uh, spun a company out of Nortel, uh, where I came uh, to Atlanta to work for, and um, had spent all my time here on airplanes going to other places. Because uh, while we had about um, two thousand employees here at the time, uh, Nortel did in Atlanta. Most of our employees were elsewhere, and so I didn't know anyone here. I knew one person basically. It was a guy named Stephen Fleming. And, um, when I got ready to, to that was leave a good person to know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to pick one, yeah, I was uh, picking one. And interestingly at the time he was not with the ATDC. He was with a venture capital fund here in town called ATV, uh, not to be confused with other ATVs. And, uh, but I reached out to him and, um, he made some introductions, uh, for me and that, um, that's kind of, was the beginning. And one of the things he, um, introduced me to was the ATDC and that that was a entity that I uh, should go talk to. And so I started my first company as an ATDC company uh, back then. And then uh, were all your ventures through here? I know this one now is in the first one. Yeah. The, so they've all uh, been through here in some way, shape or form. And I've been here as an EIR through multiple tours of duty uh, as well. 
In fact, um, I think 2002 was the first time I did, and there were only two of us then. There really wasn't an official program then. In mm-hmm. fact, Stephen Fleming uh, was uh, running the ATDC then, and I think it was a little bit of a mercy mission that he gave me the uh, EIR uh, role then. If you remember, 2002 was not the healthiest uh, time in right. the tech sector. Um, and and then I uh, started – so my first company was a company called uh, Encanta, which is a streaming media uh, company in the radio space. And then um, uh, that was way too early, um, if you think so. We raised about $20 million for that and uh, spent about $20 million, uh, <laughs> for that. And um, uh, I came back here as an EIR looking to figure out what to build as my next uh, company. So that took a while because that was such a kind of dark days, you know, uh, post-bubble burst. Um, but by 2004, I had run into a Georgia Tech professor um, that had uh, something at the Vent- at Venture Lab – um, which is a little bit sometimes a feeder program into the ATDC. That's not officially what it does. But um, uh, anyway, we then started another company, ATDC company called Asankia. Uh, Asankia, we sold to EMC. Um, I came back here after my days at EMC, started another company called Sonoya Systems, which I ended up selling to uh, Concurrent, uh, which was a micro cap here in Atlanta, um, and then have come back now to start mm-hmm. Mantra. So. Now, you must be so proud, Jane, to see that kind of – you can't get rid of these people, right? I know. Yeah. It's great. And in fact, back in I think 2015 during one of your stints as an EIR, Scott and I started as entrepreneurs in residence on the same day. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of nice how cyclical it is because mm-hmm. I was at ATDC 10 years before Scott was. Mm-hmm. And we are all getting very excited around here because we are coming up for the 40th anniversary of the ATDC. But back in the late 80s, I was also involved with the ATDC. And it was it's very interesting to see how it continues to evolve and stay relevant to entrepreneurs throughout the decades. It's, and you it's can see as nice. part of the DNA, obviously, is a connection that people want to stay connected to it. They're not, it's not like, oh, I got it. I don't need you anymore. I'm going to do, you know, you, you came back here multiple times mm-hmm. when, you know, you had a lot of know-how and connections and relationships. You didn't have to come back here, but the, the value is so high you wanted to. Yeah, and I think the the needs are different for different people at different stages in their career as well. So, um, you know, what was helpful for me, you know, the first time around is not necessarily what's helpful right. for me now. You know, I think a lot of the educational programs and training programs they provide uh, now are probably not as helpful for me. But certainly the the networking, um, the connection to the resources provided right, the by Georgia talent, Tech, access to talent. I mean. Mm-hmm. That's relevant. Every, There's really every no time. other place uh, in Atlanta to be able to uh, gain that. And I think it's a unique thing in Atlanta because I've looked in other markets as well that uh, doesn't exist in the same way in, mm-hmm. in some of the other markets, especially around the southeast um, uh, and, and certainly in, in areas up and down the east coast. Well, Jane, you ready to put them on the hot seat? Sure. Let's put them on the hot seat. So name one of the things that has been very influential in your career as an entrepreneur. Yeah, so so Jane, you challenged me with this and uh, to come up with five. And I will say the first thing is, um, you know, I don't know if this is the same for everybody, but the, I I have more negative influences potentially <laughs> to put on the list than positive influences. I found that like, too. Like well, I found that too. So what does that mean? The negative influence, like things don't do this, or like yeah, cautionary like, tales. Yeah, like I did something or <laughs> ran into something, and it was like, yeah, I don't I don't, don't want that again. <laughs> right. Really, that was so, first. 
Um, yeah, so I have a, a few of those, and I left those off the list. I tried to stick with, with <laughs> just the positive, um, positive. more positive ones. Um, so yeah, so just looking across a variety of of uh, things, there was a person I've had one mentor I think in my career who kind of stands head and shoulders uh, above other ones as a guy named Pete Peterson. Uh, interestingly, he's the one um, uh, Stephen Fleming knows him as well. If Stephen happens to listen to this, he'll. Um, he and I could bond over the fact that we have a, a mutual admiration for this guy. So um, kind of a crusty old um, guy. So for someone, uh, you know, I come from a, you know, a traditional educational background and, you know, went back and got my MBA and, you know, I guess have all the standard um, uh, educational credentials that you would expect, you know, for someone maybe who um, has followed some of the career stuff that I followed, but Pete was just the opposite. Pete had, uh, I don't even know where he went to college. I know he went to college because Nortel wouldn't have hired him. Um, but then he worked on a, a oil rig uh, after high school, before college, told lots of stories about <laughs> um, being on uh, oil rigs. And I, and I think in uh, Virginia of all places, which I didn't even know uh, had him. And then eventually found his way into the tech industry or telecom industry. And he helped launch um, Nortel into North into the U.S. market after uh, the breakup of AT&T. And so he was kind of really well-renowned, certainly within um, Nortel as, um, you know, a marketing leader and just a strategy leader for helping uh, get us in. And he used to know kind of by um, um, almost by this um, – by second nature, all the things that you go learn in business school. So, um, but then you used to have to have, to have this translator uh, in your head that you had to work out to be like, what the hell does he mean by that? Right. So he used to talk about the rock. So we were, so at the time that I interacted with Pete, I had come out of business school. I was in a rotational program with uh, Nortel and I was doing my first uh, or second rotation was, was with Pete. So it was my first few months there. And it was just me and about four of the people. He was in a semi-retirement position by this point. And um, we were sitting around doing, we were launching a new telephone product. Uh, we're going to uh, decide we were going to get into the consumer. Well, uh, here's what we had decided. We had decided that um, Nortel, if, um, Nortel knew how to build multi-billion dollar uh, products for, for massive markets. What we didn't know how to do was build smaller, more innovative products. Um, maybe went after a small market and then could grow into a big market. So we were trying to reinvent all the processes. This was under uh, John Roth at the time. Um, and so it was a little bit of this uh, reinvention of how we did our processes. So we were just constantly trying to figure out different ways to do stuff. So um, we were launching a, a consumer telephone product and there was about four of us working on it including Pete. And anyway, we were doing some uh, meetings and he just kept talking about the rock, you know, well, I don't know if this fits the rock. This is the, you know, what about the rock? How does it go against the rock? And I and kept no looking one around. knew what that meant. Well, a couple of the other people in the room knew what it meant. <laughs> I had no idea what it meant for like an hour. I'm just kept taking notes going, okay, well, we'll, we'll work on the rock. <laughs> and, um, Anyway, we, what eventually that was, was it was, um, marketing positioning is your positioning statement, how that becomes a positioning statement. I know, but that's eventually what it was. And his view was you, it's, it's the foundation of your product that you test everything else up, up against. And if it doesn't, uh, stick or apply, then it can't be part of the rock. So, um, we had lots of things and eventually people that knew Pete, well, you could sort of compare notes about, um, sort of the, uh, um, how you, uh, translated what he would say into, um, uh, into things that would actually uh, work for anybody else that had a more traditional educational background. <laughs> so, um, but Pete well, was fantastic. I ended up 
working for Pete for a year and a half. I ended up doing multiple rotations there, uh, stayed in contact with him even after retirement. Uh, he, I think he is now retired in Utah. And, uh, and so when I've been out there skiing or whatever, I've still got to go see him. Uh, and I, and I know a number of others that have done the same. So, so, you so that's one. So the person has to be a rock that we've established that. And yes. do you keep a rock in each of your companies then? Do you I have should, that foundation? Well, I, I will say that there is a, a, another term that's not quite – it's funny. Um, he, We were going through some uh, presentations. We were going to do a presentation for Roth, for, for John Roth, the guy who became – he was COO at the time, became the CEO. And as we're going through the charts, he just says, oh, that's a horse chart. And I was like, okay, great. I don't know Another what a horse term. chart is. Yeah. And I'm like looking at it going, there's no animals, there's no horses. I need more content. And he's like, do you not know what that is? And so and I'm like, called you out. no. So he stands up, stands up and he draws a, um, you know, on the whiteboard, he sort of draws a chart. He draws a pretty crude horse and then he labels it horse. And he was like, I didn't need to see the damn word horse to know that that's a horse. That's a horse chart. And I'm like, okay, I get it. It's obvious, <laughs> you know. I'm stating the obvious in the chart or whatever. So I have used horse chart on people uh, <laughs> quite a bit, where you know they they label charts or whatever the obvious. And it um, uh, in his own weird sort of way, he influenced a lot of the way that we present, uh, the way I present information, um, even today. So now, uh, any other influences? So that's people. Is there any, um, kind of, do you, where do you get your education? Are you like blogs, books, uh, like what, what kind of influences you from that standpoint, from an educational standpoint? Yeah, I do. Well today, I mean, I, I try to keep myself educated mostly through podcasts and books. Um, although a lot of the books that I've read, uh, recently, I wouldn't necessarily put them in the top five of ones. I mean, the one book I have in here for, is from a while ago, it was a big influence, which was insanely great uh, that St- uh, Stephen Levy wrote uh, way back when uh, about the invention of the Mac uh, from back then. That was a book that I had dog-eared and uh, notes all throughout what that What part book. of that resonated with you? I was early in my career at the time in doing product management and, you know, in pr- product marketing. So um, what influenced me was um, showing that there was an approach to launch um, new products in, a, in an innovative and creative way within an existing company. So mm-hmm. um, there, um, the processes that I think, um, like when we look at things like Lean Startup and all these other books and methods, those hadn't been written at the time. So there was very little to go by out there about like how to kind do of that. a roadmap that it is possible. And this is a way to do this it. is a, a way to do it. And this is a way that was obviously done successfully. So, um, what about, about you? What about creativity? Creatively? Is there an influence creatively that you kind of lean on? Yeah. Uh, so I was actually a theater major undergrad, uh, computer science and theater. Yeah. So. I'm sure there was a lot of you, right? A lot of it's that left brain, right brain thing. How many other theater majors you run into in your career? Uh, Almost zero, Um, unless I'm at the theater, and they might be there watching with you. Yeah, the so I was the only one. uh, So I went to Vanderbilt undergrad, and I was the only computer science theater major uh, there. So um, maybe not so surprisingly. (laughs) Um, but, um, I actually started molecular biology and then, uh, switched over. There were uh, too many theater majors there. Exactly. <laughs> there's too, crowded there's too creative. There's too much creativity going on in virus research. So, 
Um, so I, so, uh, creative in- influences and, you know, I, I tend to get from, um, theater, from, uh, music. Um, I do, uh, try to do that quite a bit, um, uh, and have throughout my whole career. Um, I think, and I think it's provided some advantage, uh, for me, uh, to be able to continue to, uh, how, how do you kind of work that through your organization to, um, get people to think creatively and to, you know, not just see the horse, but to go beyond that? So I've done a, um, a, a variety of things, um, some successfully, some not successfully over the years uh, to do that. Um, you know, the funniest one maybe originally was uh, when we were d- uh, developing that uh, consumer telephone product, um, um, No Doubt had come out with Tragic Kingdom. And one of the songs on that was Spider Webs, which was basically about people um, leaving messages on a phone and uh, driving them crazy. And that was a little bit about what our our product was supposed to do. It was supposed to end that uh, t- telephony sort of nightmare of being tracked down on your phone. And so I decided to uh, take the MP3 and forward it to everybody else, uh, not realizing that I was one of the only people on the team that actually had broadband at the time. Everybody <laughs> else was on a, on a uh, dial-up. Uh, why? I don't know. And uh, anyway, I clogged all of their uh, home uh, f- uh, uh, modems trying to load one song uh, for them. <laughs> And then when they finally loaded it, they were just pissed off because they were like, I don't, I don't understand. Why did you send me a song? Like, right. What does that have to do with business? And I'm like, oh, no, this is like great. I mean, it's actually, you know, clearly a big enough need right. in the market that people are writing songs about it. So um, so um, looking at songs or, or actually forwarding in a, in a more uh, easy or easier way, I, I definitely still do that with teams, um, recommending books all the time. Uh, usually books that are um, uh, fiction uh, and or um, uh, increasingly now stuff that's uh, series or other things that are on, you know, Netflix or mm-hmm. other sources that people have access to. Now, are there any um, kind of events or go to places that you go for your information? Like in because, your industry, are there kind mm-hmm. of some must attend well, interestingly, I almost put on my list, you know, I attended um, two TED conferences uh, back when TED was not cool. Um, I think it was TED 9, 10, 11 uh, that I went to. Um, I did that because we were doing some PR work uh, for the company that I was with at the time. And um, uh, Bob Metcalf, um, the inventor of Ethernet, had been invited and uh, we were there shadowing him uh, at the conferences. And it was um very cool. Still being run by Richard Saul Warman, uh, who is the founder of the conference. Uh, I don't know the guy who runs it now. The British guy that runs it now took it over uh, after him. And it was still very – it was less political and more um, just about technology, entertainment, and design. Right. Yeah, so it was very inspirational to just wander around. I think uh, Dale Chaluli had uh, his stuff at one of them. Wow. And uh, he was still early, you know, before uh, – relatively undiscovered uh, at the time. Um, and there were some uh, musicians that were there. Um, uh, all of it, just a, a fantastic kind of environment to be sort of ensconced in. So, um, the events that, that there were other events that tried to mimic that, uh, that were in the tech industry, you know, up to maybe about 15 years ago, and most of them have disappeared. So there was a, uh, agenda and vortex and PC forum and all these ones where people would, um, meet sort of in the fall to winter to try to uh, predict what the major trends would be for the next year and kind of get together in a small, uh, group in that, uh, uh, sort of format. Um, and I really do miss those, uh, a lot. Um, there's not really anything that's kind of stepped in to replace that. that void. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I end up going to a lot of events that are industry related events, but mm-hmm. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call them inspirational. They're just there for business purposes. Have you been to burning man? 
<clears throat> no, I've not been to the Burning Man. <laughs> I, I wish I'd gone to the Fire Festival, but um, it's not too late. There's yeah. still tickets. <laughs> yeah, there are. Yeah. It's still the same experience now as it was exactly. back then. No, I, I bring it up because with the guys from Google stepping down, apparently they met Eric Schmidt at Burning Man of all places. <laughs> you know, I just find that. Very interesting. Yeah. It might have been cool to go to Burning Man ten years ago or yeah. something. Now I think it's it's kind of overdone. It's over the top. Yeah, yeah. and it's I mean it's kind of like uh, Coachella now. I mean it's um, it's a, a B, C and B C and kind of place as opposed to right. Go get the spirit na- naked of it, in the right. It, and its genesis was one thing, and now it's kind of devolved into something else. Yeah. So now, uh, Jane, is this how you envision this kind of segment going? Sure. I think there's. Tons of takeaways that we've been been hearing from Scott, and it's so funny. He started out saying that you know some of the things that influence you as an entrepreneur are are things that you learn from, and those aren't necessarily always positive things. Right, and certainly they're things that you don't want to repeat. And I know when I was making my list, one of the things that hugely influenced me was I was running an online travel company at the time of 9-11. And while 9-11 is very impactful for everyone who remembers it, when you're running a travel company, we lost 93% of our business overnight. Right. And you're sitting there. We were a a company of 45 people. We were doing 22 million in revenue. And overnight – 93% 93% of it went away. And it's something that you couldn't have planned for. Even like it, no. it goes beyond a worst case scenario, right? No, like it, it, it does. It does. And you're, you're forced to tap into your resiliency, which I feel is something very important that you have to have as an entrepreneur. You had to tap into your leadership capabilities because 44 other employees were looking at me to guide them through this process. Um, you watched the, the titans in the travel industry at the time start to lay off people. And everyone in our company knew it was only a matter of time before right. we did it. it. took us about nine months to get back to the revenue rate that we were at. And there were lots of lessons learned along the way. But whenever I refer to it, um, I don't think an entrepreneur can ever deny that luck and timing has a lot to do with success. And when you are challenged with something like an event that you have absolutely no control over, that totally devastates your business, and you have to find that resiliency to pick yourself up, guide yourself through it, um, it's something that you tap into and you can learn from. It was a negative thing, but it was hugely influential. Right, from that point forward. But now when that was happening, was there somebody or a, was there a person that you were could lean on because or were you just kind of making this up as you were going along? Well, amazingly, that bonded all of our employees together in such a way to the point that even though the company's long sold, uh, Travelocity ended up requ- acquiring us and now Expedia has acquired Travelocity. But once a year – there is still a group of us who still get together because we really bonded over it. And I think some of the themes that come out of that is culture that you build with the team that, that is helping you build your company and grow your company. It's uh, communication amongst the employees. 
And it says something to me that a group of us still get together once a year. Right. Um, it now, was well, a, when that was happening. Was it something like everybody knew it was happening? So, in a right. lot of times in business, things are happening that leadership knows about that, but it, everybody else doesn't know about. Now, did that uh, the fact that everybody knew did that make it easier to say, "Hey, we all have to hunker down together and kind of bond," as opposed to an instance where? maybe only a handful of people in the organization know something bad is coming or is about to happen. And then would you have communicated differently in that case? I think you're right. I mean, in that particular instance, everybody knew we were going to have to make some changes. And yes, it did involve some layoffs. We ended up uh, laying off about a third of the staff. So we went down to about 30 people and everyone took it really, really well. And we did it as a group. Some of that was dictated by HR law in the UK. We happen to be headquartered in the United Kingdom. Um, so some of that and the whole uh, redundancy policy that they have and the employment law that they had dictated some of the path that we followed. But we were bonded as a team of people. And everyone stayed in touch with each other. We worked hard at helping those that had no choice but to, to be laid off help them find new jobs and move forward. Fortunately, we were pretty well known as a company. So a lot of people having had our company, allhotels.com on their resume, that was very helpful for where they went next. Mm -hmm. So now uh, that kind of influence, Scott, did you have something like that ever occur in your? Well, I actually had 9-11 on my list as well. So um, I happened, I was living in Atlanta and uh, jumped on a 6 a.m. flight to go to New York, was there for a supposed to be there for a conference <clears throat> and like a lot of other people, you know, got, you know, either stranded up there or just obviously uh, life changed. So uh, you made it to New York. I, well, I made it to Newark <laughs> airport, uh, jumped in the back of a cab. I think I had a Blackberry at the time, you know, got on my Blackberry and I'm just sort of, you know, head down looking at email, all that. And, um, the cabbie was not in a cab, not an Uber. Um, the cab driver was having trouble finding um, a way to get, you know, through one of the tunnels. And so um, I was like any good um, backseat driver telling him, you the know, right which tunnel path. to take. Yeah, right. exactly. And what he should do. So we was following my directions and moving around and we couldn't get anywhere. And I was on the phone with some guy who said, Hey, um, yeah, something like a Cessna or something hit one of the uh, buildings. Um, Cause no one was, really sure what totally had happened yet and the Cessna did hit a building like in that time frame oh right around that, that time frame yeah. yeah so it was um so uh anyway eventually the guy um the the cab driver had a tv that he was uh watching while he was driving his... and lifted it up and showed it to me and it was like the island you closed. were in the tunnel uh, we were in a line trying to get to, um, so is the Lincoln Tunnel is the one that's further south or the Holland Tunnel, whichever one uh, was further south. We were basically in line to get there because when he finally pointed the TV, then he pointed to the windshield and I looked up and the towers are on oh fire God. in front of us. Wow. Uh, first tower oh, wow. was on fire. And um, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to get on the island <laughs> yeah, at this point. So um, he, we were near uh, Hoboken, Jersey City and all that. And um, it was interesting how fast everything happened after that because I was like, well, just get me to a hotel. I'll figure it out, you know, get me to some sort of Marriott because I knew I could probably uh, get into one of those. And as he was, we were in Jersey City and as he, uh, we passed a, uh, a Marriott and, uh, and as he was going to do a U-turn, 
there were military trucks coming and blocking off every turn at, and we were trying to get ahead of them so that we could get a U-turn before the next one blocked off the wow. uh, middle of the road. And then, and then he uh, dropped me off and then, you know, uh, we were very, I mean, just right down there uh, close to everything going on. So I got stuck there for about three days and well, you mentioned resiliency, which is one of the words I had written down about this because um, you know, I, uh, I had nothing but, you know, myself, you know, my wife and kids were here. Um, you know, it's kind of crystallizes in your mind kind of what's important. Right. And, um, and there was no work really to get done for you know, a couple of days. So other than just sitting around a hotel room and thinking about your life and thinking about, you know, why am I up here? What's, what's important. And, uh, anyway, eventually, uh, figured out that there were a bunch of rental cars in Newark because no one had come in to pick up their <laughs> rental cars for the day. So you drove back, drove back, actually picked up my wife's cousin in DC. So drove by the Pentagon. Oh, um, so oh wow. Got the up. whole tour. Oh yeah. <laughs> Got the whole nine 11 tour. And then, um, and then, uh, came, came home that way. So, uh, but I, I think, um, and that whole, during the bubble burst period, cause that all, you know, was within a few months of each other. Yeah. Right. So. Um, that whole time frame was, uh, for me, um, kind of a make it or break it, like, you know, questioning, is this what I'm going to go do the rest of my life? Cause a lot of people just stepped away from the industry right. then. And, um, and, you know, and I, I spent quite a bit of soul, self, uh, reflection, soul searching, uh, locking myself in, in a room and just, you know, curling up into a fetal position for a while, quite honestly, and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And eventually after a few days sort of emerged, uh, kind of a changed person after that. But uh, I think with a lot more, you know, personal resiliency and grit, you know, coming out of that, that, um, you know, could have broken me the other way, I guess. But, uh, I think, I think fortunately, uh, went in a positive direction, I think for me and with a very negative, uh, sort of influence. So, and those kind of challenges um, happen to everybody throughout their life in different ways. And people, you know, deal with them, like you said, and some people left the industry and, you know, they're doing something else. And some people said, you know what, I'm going to build on this. And it can bring a group together. So it can. I mean, out of mm-hmm. adversity, a lot of times some good can come of it. Uh, so now in this kind of segment going forward, Jane, uh, how do you see this playing out? Like we're going to get some entrepreneurs and put them in this kind of hot seat and then, uh, kind of. Yeah, I think it gives everybody a chance to think about, uh, people, um, books, activities, events that have really influenced you as an entrepreneur because, um, every step along the journey, uh, changes the way you do things, maybe, forces you to pivot, forces to give you uh, a pause, and you do a lot of reflection and the whole resiliency thing again. And I think an important component of it is that, uh, and a lot of times see leadership especially feels like it's just them, you know, they're alone in this, and they're really not alone. There are people influencing, there are people supporting and celebrating and helping them You know, often around here or in the lunches that we have with some of the CEOs getting together, we share which books have been influential with us. Um, You mentioned the book that was influential to you, an old one that I still recommend to people is How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that has been around for a long time. And especially on stone tablets, I think. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, but but you know, there's a there's a whole section in that book to uh, about getting people to come around to your point of view, 
And as you're leading people in trying to pull an entrepreneurial company through its life stages, you've got to pull that team through. You've got to get that teamwork going and everybody's got to get together on the same page. So I think that book is always a good one for, for people to, to read. And I, I think in books and podcasts and blogs, like you mentioned, um, those are mentors in a way. You know, the, the mentor doesn't have to be in front of you or on the phone. They, you can get mentoring in a lot of different ways. That's right. You can get it from a lot of different uh, sources, too. And then I won't go into the full story. But one of the influences I put in there uh, in my uh, – Top five was uh, a job that I had at a, just at a video store in high school. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one of the way I got the job is I won a video game contest. Um, and the video game contest had a one hour time limit on it. And the the big learning was that for me was I, I came in to get my one hour time slot to play the game. Um, they did it in the store. This is on the old Atari 2600 uh, to date myself a game called Laser Blast. And, uh, the way the game worked, it was, you know, one of these games where you figure out a repeating pattern. And if you get the pattern right, you don't lose any ships or whatever. So I, I practiced and practiced and no matter what you did in an hour, you got to about 200,000 points. And so I turned the game off and got ready to go to bed. And I was just laying in bed because I was going to, my slot was the next morning and realizing everybody's going to figure this pattern out. So like sometimes it was 200, sometimes it's 205, whatever, but everybody's going to be at the same spot. So I got back up and I was like, I got to figure out there was another pattern where I was losing ships that maybe I can do that pattern, but I never went far enough with it because it wasn't a perfect uh, lossless uh, pattern. So I started doing this other one where every few screens you would lose a couple of ships and uh, realized that I was gaining more uh, ships at a faster rate than I was losing. And when I finished it now where I finished at 400,000 points. Mm-hmm. Wow. So came the next day, the guy who owned the place was like, yeah, you're not, you know, good, good luck. luck right? Yeah, you're not, whatever. We got the, the best ones are 200. You're not going to hit that. So, you know, I'm, uh, I was hoping that you would win. I mean, you just gave me this whole real downer <laughs> thing. Well, I start up and I'm about halfway in. I hit 200 at about halfway in and he looks over my shoulder and he's like, what time did you start? <laughs> and, uh, anyway, it's, and I, I hit 400 and it, they were amazed. And I, and, and what influenced me in that whole thing was that, um, perfection is not necessarily the best strategy, right? right? Just acceptable losses uh, is actually uh, uh, the right way to look at a lot right. of the things. And trust the chaos a little bit. You know, it doesn't have to be the perfect path that we're all searching for. Just the path could be good enough and we can meander around. That's okay. Yeah. And that's, okay. and that's one of those things where, you know, it was just some video game that you still was able to learn a lesson from it uh, that I've taken into business uh, since then. So uh, in a lot of different ways. Good stuff. Well, um, if somebody wants to learn more about Mantra, what's the point? We are at uh, mantra.io or just search for Mantra Solutions and you'll reach us. And then Jane, if somebody wanted to get involved with ATDC? Uh, We'd love to hear from them and just send an email to info at atdc.org. And atdc.org is the place where all the events, all the learning, they can find a lot of resources there as well. That's right. Well, thank you both for sharing your stories today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. This is Lee Cantor for Stone Payton. We will see you all next time on ATDC Radio.